how do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This week's episode is brought to you by me. That's right. For today's podcast, I'm advertising myself. Now that I'm done with my PhD exams, it's time for me to hop onto the job market, and I'm hoping maybe some of you can give me a hand. So, I'm looking to start a teaching gig either at community college, a private school, or a public high school, though I'm not certified to teach that. And, while I live in Washington State, I'd be willing to relocate pretty much anywhere for a job. So, if you know of any job openings, have advice for an aspiring teacher, or just want to send me some encouragement, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a line at ijmeyeruw.edu or send me a message through the History of Japan podcast Facebook page. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 129, The Fall of the Samurai, part 11. So, still no functioning desktop yet, but hopefully that'll be up and running by the time of our next episode. This week, we finally get into it the real decline and fall of the house of Tokugawa. It seemed like, and indeed it was only a short time ago, that the house of Tokugawa was on top of the world. Only two years previously, it had decisively crushed all competitors in the whirlwind series of military victories that was 1864. But alas, nothing lasts forever, and some things don't last a very long time at all. Still, such philosophic utterances would have been very far from the minds of Tokugawa leaders in 1865 as they prepared to deal with Choshu again. After Takasugi Shinsaku's little coup in March 1865, when his Shotai forces ejected the government which had made peace with the Tokugawa from office, the Tokugawa began planning another campaign against Choshu. In a public relations move, the shogun Tokugawa Iemochi, at this point all of 19 years old, relocated to Osaka in the summer of 1865, from which he was supposed to personally direct the campaign against Choshu. Not that Iemochi would actually personally lead the campaign, I mean, my god, he's only 19 years old. Somebody more seasoned would have to take actual command, but having the shogun go personally made good sense from a PR perspective. However, as Iemochi began setting up shop in Osaka, the Tokugawa leadership was forced to take a brief sidetrack. Once again, the foreign menace reared its ugly head. This time, the issue was the port city of Hyogo, the modern city of Kobe. According to the Harris Treaty, and my god, remember the Harris Treaty? That was like seven episodes ago. Hyogo was supposed to be one of the treaty ports open to foreign commerce. However, the Bakufu had delayed and temporized and come up with excuse after excuse to delay opening it. The rationale for the delay was always similar. The Bakufu was worried about guaranteeing the safety of foreigners in Hyogo, especially since the treaty port there was the physically closest of all the treaty ports to the imperial capital at Kyoto, which would make it a tempting target for Shishi. 
Now, how charitable you want to be in believing that rationale is up to you. Concern over the safety of foreigners was probably part of the equation for many Tokugawa leaders. Remember that hot mess the death of Charles Lennox Richardson had been? However, so too was the potential PR boon of being seen to publicly impede the penetration of foreigners into Japanese territory. That kind of thing would play well with many fence-sitters who lay on the political spectrum between the Tokugawa and the Shishi. However, by summer 1865, the foreign missions in Japan had had enough. Japan had signed and ratified the treaty, and it was time they lived up to what had been agreed to. A foreign fleet sailed down to Osaka and demanded the opening of Hyogo, as well as an official announcement from the emperor indicating his approval of the contents of the treaties, designed to forestall this kind of thing from happening again. Included within this dispute were the British, who by this time were also actively selling weapons to both Satsuma and Choshu behind the back of the Tokugawa. I have no idea if the British were deliberately trying to buy Choshu time to develop its own weaponry by stalling the Tokugawa and forcing the Tokugawa to concentrate on something else, but I could certainly believe it. The dispute over Hyogo was finally resolved several months later when, in November 1865, the Tokugawa government officially got Emperor Kome to announce his approval of the treaties and the opening of Hyogo. Not that the approval of the emperor did much to convince Shishi of anything. Obviously, from the Shishi perspective, the emperor was being held hostage by the depraved, foreign-loving Tokugawa who were acting out the will of their foreign masters. So all told, this little sidetrack cost the Tokugawa several months of preparation time. By the time everything had been resolved, winter had come around, making a further campaign impossible until spring 1866. And, in the end, the whole thing had been another PR nightmare for the Tokugawa, since, once again, they were seen to be bowing to foreign pressure. In early 1866, the preparations for the campaign against Choshu began. However, in what was rapidly becoming something of a comedy of errors, most of the Tokugawa army was forced to remain in Osaka. By this point, the massive force slated to attack Choshu had been garrisoned in Osaka for over half a year, far longer than originally anticipated. As a result, the Tokugawa had already cleaned out the food stockpiles they'd brought along, and had started buying up food to feed their armies on the open market. This not only hindered the chronically cash-strapped government, but also drove prices for goods through the roof in the Osaka area. The Bakufu further exacerbated the issue by dragging the merchant houses into it, announcing a forced loan to help pay the price of foodstuffs for the army. Riots broke out across Osaka shortly thereafter, and then spread into other Tokugawa domains hit hard by these war taxes designed to make up the costs of the expedition. Many of the forces slated to go fight Choshu had to stay behind as a result, attempting to reassert law and order behind the lines. Meanwhile, while this whole mess was going down, the Tokugawa were also issuing orders to domains in the same region as Choshu 
to assemble their forces and prepare to attack in support of the Tokugawa armies. Unsurprisingly, many of the domains ordered to participate were, shall we say, less than enthusiastic. Many pleaded that they could not afford another expedition, or sent far fewer troops than they were supposed to, or arranged for their troops to, mistakenly, deploy in the wrong place, and then retreat. Tosa Domain, for example, begged off by saying that it had a large number of shishi within its borders, and Tosa participation in an attack on Choshu would almost certainly spark a rebellion within Tosa by shishi sympathetic to the Choshu cause. In one case in particular, the Bakufu order to mobilize for war met with a particularly unwilling response, and here's where we have to rewind things in our story back a little bit. Remember how I mentioned that, as a part of the conservative resurgence of the Tokugawa, people with shishi ties were forced out of their positions, including young Sakamoto Ryoma, disciple of Katsukaishu? Well, Sakamoto had fled the nearest safe haven he could find. Since he was living on Nagasaki in the island of Kyushu, that meant that the nearest powerful anti-Tokugawa domain was Satsuma. Sakamoto fled down to Satsuma and was given fairly lavish treatment by Shiji allies once he got there. They even arranged for him to take a private little vacation to a local hot spring to take the edge off. However, soon it was back to business, and Sakamoto had a very certain kind of business in mind. Posing as an official Satsuma Domain Samurai with a Satsuma-issued passport, which is how he was able to make it through so many Bakufu checkpoints, Sakamoto made his way to Kyoto, to the Terada Inn. The Terada Inn had a tight business relationship with Satsuma Domain, as many a Satsuma retainer on business in Kyoto had stayed there in the past. It had also been a hotbed of Satsuma Shishi activity. Back in the old days of 1861 and 1862, Satsuma Shishi had regularly used it as a meeting place while in Kyoto. Sakamoto used it as a base from which to enter talks with Choshu about the possibility of a Satsuma-Choshu alliance against the Bakufu. The two domains by this point had already developed a commercial relationship. Satsuma had, after the bombardment of Kagoshima, developed a close working relationship with the British, and in particular, with the commercial firm of Jardine Matheson. If you've never heard of Jardine Matheson before, they were a shipping conglomerate founded by a pair of Scotsmen working as traders in the Chinese city of Canton, or Guangzhou, William Jardine and James Matheson. The business made its money through the time-honored method of smuggling drugs, particularly opium, into China, and smuggling goods, especially tea, back out to circumvent Chinese government duties on all exports. By the 1860s, however, the firm had diversified into that old moneymaker, arms dealing. Saigo Takamori of Satsuma arranged for his domain to provide guns and ammo to Choshu via this connection. Satsuma would buy weapons from Jardine Matheson, and then Satsuma ships would bring the weapons into Choshu in order to help disguise the strength of the new Choshu army. Tokugawa spies incorrectly figuring that Choshu leaders would trust only their own ships to bring weapons in. So there was already a basis for the relationship. Sakamoto was just looking to expand it. 
Now, Sakamoto Ryoma had prepared his ground well. He'd already spoken to that group of imperial court nobles who'd been forced to flee Kyoto after the government put out warrants for their arrest. The nobles, led by Sanjo Sanetomi and Iwakura Tomomi, agreed to lend their voices to an alliance, giving the whole thing the appearance of imperial approval, or at least the next best thing to direct imperial approval, while the emperor himself was still a hostage of the damned shogunate dogs. Sakamoto's opposite number on the negotiating table was Kido Takayoshi of Choshu, a long-standing shishi who I have neglected, who has been involved in the shishi movement from its inception. Kido had been a participant in Choshu's attack on the gates of the Imperial Palace in 1864. He dodged the shogun's retribution, not by fleeing to Choshu, but by hiding in Kyoto in the home of his geisha lover, who later became his wife. So sweet story there. Kido was generally in favor of the alliance, but wary of working with Choshu's age-old rival. But, thankfully for the Shishi cause, it didn't take long for the Bakufu leadership to shoot itself in the foot and dispel all of Kido's doubts. The catalyst was the March 1866 declaration by the Tokugawa of the exact terms Choshu would have to comply with in order to avoid punishment, the issuing of a Tokugawa ultimatum. The terms of the ultimatum were pretty brutal. Both the daimyo of Choshu, Mori Takachika, and his son would have to come to Edo as hostages. Takachika would have to abdicate as daimyo, though his grandson, a young baby who could easily be manipulated by the Tokugawa, could take his place. The 100,000 koku reduction of the domain would take place as scheduled, and the court nobles being sheltered in Choshu had to be handed over to the Tokugawa. Takasugi Shinsaku and his shotai were to be disarmed and executed. The punishment was clearly designed to break the power of Choshu to resist the Bakufu, and it was a decisive factor in pushing Satsuma and Choshu towards an alliance. After all, on the Satsuma side, if they were going to fight against the Tokugawa, it was better to do so with a strong ally than one crippled by Tokugawa peace terms. On the Choshu side, well, they'll take any help they can get. The original agreement was defensive in nature. It did not require that Satsuma send troops to Choshu to protect its new ally. Instead, Satsuma would try to get the emperor to intercede and prevent the expedition from happening. If this failed, and it will fail because Emperor Kome was not an idiot and was not prepared to flip the Tokugawa the metaphorical bird while a massive army was camped in his back door, then Satsuma would support Choshu efforts to liberate the emperor. In the short term, this agreement was still a huge boon to Choshu even without reinforcements. First, it provided a basis to increase the volume of Satsuma armed shipments to Choshu. Second, it guaranteed that Satsuma would not participate in the Tokugawa attack, even though the Tokugawa had called for them to do so. Instead, under Saigo Takamori's guidance, Satsuma issued a response condemning the entire expedition against Choshu as a waste of time that distracted from the crucial issue of the foreign threat. This announcement would prove critical, as the majority of domains on Kyushu were convinced by it, and by the size of Satsuma's army, not to send their forces as well, which meant that Choshu no longer had to worry about an attack from the west. 
Many, though not all, domains to the north, south, and east were likewise convinced by Saigo's proclamation to demur, and refused to involve themselves in any attack. The cherry on top of this was that when Choshu responded to the Tokugawa ultimatum, it did not give an affirmative or negative answer. Choshu negotiators were instructed by Takasugi Shinsaku to ask for a delay for time to consider. This was obviously a stalling tactic designed to buy Choshu more time to gear up for war and train its new forces, but for reasons that absolutely mystify me, the Tokugawa agreed to a three-month extension on the deadline for their ultimatum. I seriously have no idea why they did that, because it was just stupid. It gave Choshu more time to prepare, and it should have been obvious that compliance with Tokugawa orders was the last thing on the mind of anybody in the Choshu leadership. Best guess? The Tokugawa leadership was already losing confidence in their ability to swiftly win the war, and was hoping against hope for a negotiated settlement that would let them go home with some dignity intact. If that was the hope, though, and that's just my guess, it was a hope completely in vain. Once the extension ran out, Choshu forces immediately and loudly issued their refusal of Tokugawa demands. So, by the time the very first Bakufu forces reached Choshu and began the attack, with a naval bombardment by Tokugawa ships of a Choshu shore battery in early June, things were already in a bad way for the forces of the Shogun. They'd already lost the war on one point of the compass, and a combination of mismanagement and delay had weakened them on all the rest. Once things picked up in June, the fighting followed a fairly predictable pattern. Katsu Kaishu's new shogunate navy went into action and acquitted itself fairly well, aided by the fact that Choshu's own naval forces and defenses had never really recovered from defeat at the hands of the foreigners back in 1864. Now, warships can do a lot of things. They can block enemy invasion routes overseas, cut supply lines, and devastate enemy forces on the coast. One thing they can't do, though, is take and hold territory, and it was the war on land where the Bakufu really ran into trouble. The original Bakufu plan had anticipated attack from all sides. In the east, Hiroshima would provide the staging grounds for the main Tokugawa attack. A second force would come down from the north, what is today Shimane Prefecture. A third force would come down from the south, with forces from Shikoku attacking the Kaminoseki Islands off of Choshu's coast. A fourth force would come from the west, with Kyushu-based forces landing in Choshu, and a fifth and final amphibious attack would land just outside the Choshu capital at Hagi and march there to finish the job. However, this plan started to fall apart almost immediately. First, the decision by Satsuma not to participate badly weakened the attack from the west. Second, Hiroshima Domain declared that it could not afford to contribute troops, as the huge Bakufu army in its territory had so badly depleted Hiroshima's supply stockpiles that the Domain no longer had the resources to support sending its troops abroad. Hiroshima troops had been slated to participate in both the attack from the east and the amphibious attack on Hagi, so Bakufu planners were forced to cancel the Hagi attack, and the eastern attack was further weakened, 
Not that it would have mattered too much, because unbeknownst to those Tokugawa planners, the Choshu government had already moved from the coastal city of Hagi to the inland city of Yamaguchi, specifically to protect itself from amphibious assault. The attack on the southern islands was initially successful, with Shikoku and Bakufu forces occupying the islands without much trouble. However, about a week after the islands were occupied, Takasugi Shinsaku led the Kihei Tai in person on an amphibious assault to retake the islands. Choshu troops landed in the middle of the night, and once ashore they swiftly put the Bakufu into retreat. One down, three to go. In the east, the main Tokugawa attack came from units based in Hiroshima, and for a while things did look pretty bad for Choshu. Even with depleted numbers, the Bakufu still had a huge advantage, and it looked like Bakufu numbers might tell in the end. However, the Bakufu commander on that front, Honjo Masahide, had little stomach for the fighting and tried to negotiate a ceasefire without any authority to do so. When word of his attempt got out, Honjo was forced to resign, and while a new commander was being brought in and brought up to speed, Choshu forces took advantage and went on the offensive. Before the new commander could even get himself organized, Choshu troops launched an attack and entered the territory of Hiroshima Domain. That new commander resigned in disgrace, and Hiroshima's daimyo pleaded for, and got, an informal truce that ended the fighting on that front. Two down, two to go. In the north, Choshu forces ran right over the troops sent to attack them. A Shishi commander named Omura Masujiro, who I have given tragically short shrift to for reasons that will become apparent a few episodes down the line, did the one thing his opponents never expected. He went on the attack. Caught totally unprepared against an enemy they'd expected to hole up on the defensive, Tokugawa troops were sent fleeing as they ran right into an ambush. Before long, the daimyo of the domain in which the Tokugawa troops had been based, Hamada Domain, was forced to flee advancing Choshu forces as his castle was burned during their attack. Not surprisingly, he too asked for and got a truce. Three down, one to go. That left the attack from the west, from Kyushu. Kyushu forces took longer to get organized than had been anticipated. They'd been supposed to attack at the same time as everybody else, but the withdrawal of Satsuma left the assaulting force short of the troops and ships they'd need to attack over water. So after he finished in the south, Takasugi Shinsaku rushed with the Kihei Tai to the west, where his chief lieutenant, Yamagata Aritomo, had been captaining the defenses in his absence. Takasugi took over from Yamagata and formulated a brilliant plan. Like Omura Masujiro in the north, he would do the last thing anybody would expect when fighting a defensive war against an enemy who outnumbers you. He would go on the attack. Takasugi cobbled together a naval force to support his attack, including one ship captained by Sakamoto Ryoma. Sakamoto's ship, the Union, was originally a British vessel that had been purchased from Jardine Matheson and was crewed by Shishi and Ronin from all over Japan. With this hodgepodge navy, Takasugi launched a raid into Kyushu, with the Kihei Tai landing on shore and Sakamoto and the fleet bombarding the coast. Both parts of the attack had the same objective, 
destroy every boat that could be used to cross over to Choshu, destroy every supply stockpile that could be used by troops sent to attack Choshu. Now, there was a Bakufu fleet nearby, and it actually outnumbered the Choshu Navy, led de facto by Sakamoto Ryoma. Had the Bakufu fleet gone on the attack, there's a very real chance they could have defeated Sakamoto, crushed Choshu's fleet, and trapped Takasugi Shinsaku and the Kiheitai in Kyushu. But they didn't. In a letter to his brother, where he sketched out the course of the fighting, Sakamoto Ryoma himself wrote, quote, These Bakufu ships did not take part, but I can't imagine why. I can. I'm guessing that they didn't want to risk their ships and lives for what was increasingly becoming a slim chance of the Bakufu winning the war. Also in that letter to his brother, by the way, a glimpse of Sakamoto's excitement at how this was all turning out. Quote, This is the most interesting thing I have ever done. If I told you everything, you wouldn't believe me, but that's the way a war is. With their mission accomplished, Sakamoto, Takasugi Shinsaku, and the Kiheitai returned to Choshu. Now, fighting would continue into August, with some domains holding out far longer than others. At one point, Takasugi Shinsaku had to take the Kiheitai back over to Kyushu to defeat the daimyo of Kokura, who'd been preparing another attack on Choshu. However, diehards like the Lord of Kokura were in short supply. Most domains folded without too much trouble, especially since, for some reason, all the various Tokugawa commanders in the field were picking up stakes and rushing back to Osaka for reasons they wouldn't share with anybody. Now, at this point, just while these Tokugawa personnel were leaving was not clear, but to the elite few in the know, it all made sense. The shogun, Tokugawa Iemochi, was deathly ill and clearly not long for this world. But Isaac, I hear you saying, isn't Iemochi still pretty young? He should be healthy, right? To which I say, yes, mysterious voice in my head, you're absolutely right. Iemochi celebrated his 20th birthday in the middle of all this fighting. However, Iemochi was also an adherent of a very extreme interpretation of Buddhism, which prohibited him from eating much other than rice. Food that tastes too good being sinful, I suppose. Unfortunately for Iemochi, polished rice in the 1800s, the only kind of rice fancy rich people ate, had no nutritional value, and as a result, Iemochi was dying of what was probably a vitamin deficiency known as beriberi. Iemochi, hopefully free of all his bad karma after eating all that damn rice, finally died on August 28, 1866, in Osaka. The Bakufu kept his death secret for an entire month, while senior Bakufu leaders tried to figure out what the hell to do. Finally, they settled on announcing the death at the same time as they announced a general ceasefire with Choshu. Choshu accepted the ceasefire and sent negotiators to meet with a Bakufu representative to hammer out a final peace deal, something we'll talk about next week. Choshu Domain had done something that was supposed to be impossible. Over the course of a single summer, it had defeated 32 domains, including the Bakufu itself. Not only defeated them, in fact, but crushed all comers. Choshu prestige was at an all-time high, and Bakufu prestige, so high the previous year, was now circling the drain. 
All over Japan, shishi groups that had been forced underground by the fighting began cropping back up, and daimyo and other leaders who had previously been solidly in the Tokugawa camp started to weigh their options. The last thing I want to talk about today, though, is just who is going to get the unenviable job of trying to right the sinking Tokugawa ship. The various stakeholders hemmed and hawed, but in the end there was really only one person who it could be. It took a month or so for the consensus to be finalized, but in the end, nine years after the first time he'd tried for the job, and four years after he'd taken over as chief advisor to the old shogun, 29-year-old Tokugawa Yoshinobu was offered the top job. He accepted and became the 15th shogun of the Tokugawa house. He was also the fourth person to hold the office of shogun since we started this series, and though he did not know it at the time, will be the last person to do so. Indeed, I can't help but wonder sometimes if the only reason Tokugawa Yoshinobu got the job was that by this point, nobody else was crazy enough to want it. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. To find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time for The Fall of the Samurai Part 13, and I say next time rather than next week, because I will be taking the next week off to go back home and visit my family for the holidays. However, I'll be back in two weeks' time, and we'll look at the final dark days of the Tokugawa Shogunate. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.